Support for SyncBook Radio comes from listeners like you. Consider helping to make independent productions like SyncBook Radio possible by becoming a donor. Your generous gift helps to keep these unique voices broadcasting and exploring. Details about how you can help can be found at thesyncbook.com slash donate. Thanks. It was not until the age of reason that scientists tried to figure out empirically what race meant and how it came to be. The signal year was 1776 with the publication of a book on the natural variety of mankind by German biologist Frederick Blumenbach. In his day, Blumenbach's theory had a certain symmetry that made it the model, the very model of good science. These days, his theory seems insane. He argued that Native Americans were the transitional race that eventually led to Asians. Don't try to work this out, it will make your head explode. And another group, which Blumenbach simply conjured from a faraway people, the Malaysians, evolved over time to become Africans. Again, watch your head. At the center of all this change was the white race, which was constant. Blumenbach believed darkness was a sign of change from the original. All of mankind had fallen from perfection, but the darker you were, the farther you had fallen. As a result, the best way to locate the Garden of Eden, according to Blumenbach, was to follow the trail of human beauty. The hotter the women, the hunkier the men, the closer you were to what was left of God's first paradise. Here is Blumenbach explaining the new word he was coining. I have taken the name of this variety from Mount Caucasus because it produces the most beautiful race of men. Blumenbach's theory is totally forgotten today by everybody, but the single word and the oceans of misconceptions that have sprung from it probably are owed to some one trip Blumenbach made to the area where a local girl gave him a lusty wink. (laughs) The word itself is lovely. Say it, Caucasian. The word flows off the tongue like a stream trickling out of Eden. Its soothing and genteel murmur poses quite a patrician contrast to the field labor grunts of the hard G's in Negroid and Mongoloid. Caucasian. When you say it, the exotic isolation of those mountains intimates a biblical narrative. You can almost see it when you say it. The early white forebears walking away from paradise to trek to Europe to begin the difficult task of creating Western civilization. Although... When we look at the different races, what we're actually seeing is not superiority or good people or even race. All that we are seeing, the only thing we are seeing when we look at skin color, according to science, as a meandering trail of vitamin D3 adaptation rates. You're all a bunch of amateurs. Hello and good morning. I am William Morgan and you are listening to 42 Minutes, a production of SyncBook Radio and TheSyncBook.com. We are a weekly conversation with the interesting artists and thinkers of our day. You can find us online at 42minutes.com and you can reach us by sending a message to mail at 42minutes.com. You can also follow our tweets at Sync42 and at SyncBook. Today is the 18th of November and this is our 159th broadcast. It's our intention this morning to find and understand the truth and maybe even determine why America was the land of Jews gone wild. And we'll, <laughs> and we'll likely find that truth in an American garage surrounded by amateurs. Good morning, Doug here, and today we're sharing 42 minutes 
with a journalist willing to go beyond the story to find the real story. This morning we present Jack Hitt, contributing writer to the New York Times Magazine and author of Bunch of Amateurs, a search for the American character published by Crown in 2012. He occasionally contributes to This American Life, and his book Off the Road, A Modern Day Walk Down the Pilgrim's Route into Spain was made into a motion picture directed by Emilio Estevez and starring Martin Sheen. Mr. Hitt has won the Peabody, Livingston, and Pope Awards, and his Harper's Report on American Anthropology was selected for a collection of the best science writing of the past 25 years. His work also appears in Rolling Stone, GQ, Wired, and of course, Garden and Gun. He is currently touring a one-man show, Making Up the Truth, a series of slightly incredible real-life stories woven in with contemporary brain science that nearly answers the question, is any of this true? More information about his work can be found on his website, jackhit.com. We are extremely honored to host him today. How are you, Jack? How are you doing? Great. Great to be here, Doug. Thanks. And Will. Great Excellent. to be here. Well, let's start with the truth then, the capital T truth. And most people believe that it does exist, and it's actually relatively simple to find that, you know, it's a binary, it's true or not. And it can actually be found via our um, journalistic outlets of the day. But then you hear a story like The Friendly Man by Scott Carrier, and you realize that the truth is subtler and more complicated than our traditional journalism necessarily explores and this is actually what interests me it's outlets like this american life and on the media that is willing to take apart the story to uh to and uh find out what the truth really is and you're a writer that does exactly that what do you call this kind of journalism well you know i think i think truth truth exists i mean let's let's face it let's let's just let's lay that down as the base of our conversation today but i think we we shape truth in ways that s sort of befit us for the period that we're in you know i mean i think blumenbach when he was trying to dis when he was trying to discern what race was when he described it as you know a sense of beauty um, and then these gradations of beauty falling away from some perfect, uh, you know, uh, biblical uh, divine perfection of beauty. He was trying to describe what he saw, and we've been, you know, race really is a is a series of cumbersome attempts to describe the truth of our differences. It, of course, when you dig behind those stories, you find out that they're they're. They're wrong in interesting ways. They're true in some ways, but they're wrong in interesting ways. And 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 that's the kind of story that I love to dig, you know, out from under. Um, and and with this, the story that you were reading from, um, uh, you know, turns a lot on uh, Kinniwick Man, this uh, this this skeleton that was found, um, you know, a few years back, and was allegedly the sort of pre-Native American Caucasoid-like. Uh, skeleton and that that dug up all these sort of like really interesting issues about about race and who we are and how we describe what we look like. So so I would say yeah you know um, sure truth exists but we we shape it with a series of kind of likely fictions that give the truth uh, a look that we kind of prefer at a different time and place. And in twenty five years these truths will still be more or less true, but they'll be shaped by new language and new, you know, ideas of understanding and new vocabulary. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah. And then some of the vocabulary in looking at the truth are like the endowment effect or self-esteem bias or right. conf confirmation bias. Could you describe some of these? 
Uh, sure. You mean uh, you mean the actual biases? Or I mean, even the make sense epistemology. Epistemolo- <laughs> yeah, that, that word. Yes, that word. Right. <laughs> <laughs> the e word. The e word. Uh, let's see. Um, confirmation bias. Um, well, you know, so. So if you think about, I mean, we now know that cultural notions of, let's just take beauty. Let's go to Blumenbach for a second. We know that cultural notions of beauty are extremely derived from the culture that they're in, right? So, of course, we know that there, is a, there are different styles of different notions of beauty in Asia, in Central America, in Africa, North America, everywhere, right? And that those notions of beauty are true. They're just very culturally different from place to place. And what you're really looking at in Blumenbach is, you know, a kind of 18th century, very Western European centric idea of beauty then imposed on the rest of the world. I mean, really, Blumenbach is the essence of sort of the colonial uh, project, right? He defines blackness as the furthest away from true beauty, which he describes as whiteness, right? Um, And because that was the that was the culture that he lived in in you know he lived in the time of like ben franklin um and and that all made sense uh to them then now we can unpack that and see that he is simply imposing his own sort of local cultural sense of beauty on the rest of the world and ended up with with this kind of um this taxonomy of beauty that to us now seems ridiculous uh flawed and and maybe even sinister (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Sinister is important there too, um, but let's just let's talk. Take the word that he created that still lasts. Is there any science behind Caucasian or Caucasoid? None, none. Uh, you know, as I as I as I mentioned in the piece, there is really only one good scientific explanation of our different skin tones. If that's what you're talking about. Skin tones. Now, geographical uh, history, that's another matter. We can get into that in a second. But let's just look at skin tones for a second. One of the things that I looked at in this, in this piece was, was wh- wh- why is it that Eskimos uh, uh, you know, in northern Canada are dark-skinned? I mean, doesn't don't we all sort of have this sort of vague idea in our head that you know Scandinavians, where I come from, that that area of the world, um, we're all light skinned because it got colder, and somehow we just lost our skin color because of the cold rather than the say the heat of Central Africa. That makes some kind of strange sense. There's some kind of cognitive bias in that, or or just the sort of like dull conclusion that you make just by looking at things. But of course, then you you look at the rest of the world that's north of. Um, say, the Paris, uh, you know, uh, latitude, and you look at Siberians, they're dark-skinned. You look at Eskimos, they're dark-skinned. What happened? And so now we, now we sort of understand, which is that diet happened. So the diet of the Scandinavians, you know, tens of thousands of years ago was very poor for, D4, uh, for vitamin D4. Uh, whereas the, the sort of, um, the diet of Eskimos and Siberians was very high in it. And so, um, there's only two ways you can get D4. One is you can consume it. And the other is that you can manufacture it right under your skin. Um, but the best way to do that would be to have to allow lots and lots of light into your skin. And so Scandinavians and, and people in Northern Europe lost their melanin and became light skinned simply so that they could survive and produce enough D4 to live. Uh, Eskimos didn't have that 
uh, evolutionary pressure on their uh, skin tone. So it remained uh, sort of more or less the same as the original you know, African hue. Does that make sense? Right. So that is why race is different from place to place. Now, you know, we refer to Caucasians as sort of, you know, the there are peoples, we know that people came out of Africa, we know that they moved around um, the areas that we now know as the Caucasian mountains and, and Europe and the Middle East, uh, into in India, all the way over, of course, to Australia, 50,000 years ago with the aboriginals, right? Now, we know that those movements happen, and we can sort of call the people who moved out of uh, you know, uh, the Middle East in a certain time Caucasians, right? Um, and, and in fact, I think one of the, one of the great racial ironies is that uh, people of India are Caucasian, uh, technically speaking. And so you have um, in, in, in India, you have black people who are Caucasian and Asian. So put that in your racial category pipe and smoke it. <laughs> one, <laughs> in the book, you note how evolution has one big rule, that if there's no pressure on the system to change, that it doesn't change. Right. Right. People misunderstand evolution. They think it's some sort of perfection machine, right? That you get the best of all possible things through evolution, that it's a refinement towards a kind of progressive goodness, right? Right. No, no. Evolution is about getting by. If, 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 if evolution, if, 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 uh, if 51% of your, you know, sort of organism uh, traits will get you through the day, then that's what evolution will get you. It won't get you the 100% perfection. It'll get you just sort of what gets you through the day. I mean, the reason we have pain in our lower backs is because, you know, evolution never really designed our stand-up sort of primate system to take the kind of load that it takes very well. It's just enough to get us through reproductive age and, and into some decent, you know, three score, and I mean, yeah, three score and 10, you know, uh, biblical lifespan. But it, it's, it's not a great design. You know, every once in a while, Scientific <laughs> American or some magazine will design the human body as if, as, as if engineers had done it instead of evolution. And, you know, we look great. We look like Neanderthal, man, actually, with these big hips and these much better support structures, you know, and so on. Because, because there is no intelligent design. It's, it's kind of like adequate design. That's what you really <laughs> get in nature. It's a lot of barely okay design. D plus. Okay, so <laughs> <laughs> had no idea evolution was so lazy. <laughs> we'll we'll start with that. The gods an amateur. <laughs> right. No, the first, but the first I, only amateur. Right. <laughs> Actually, I do want to talk about amateurs and culture, though. And so, um, before we get into culture, could you just unpack the the word amateur because it's so important to our story a little bit? Sure. Well, it's a great word. I was a Latin uh, major in college. Yes, a Latin major. What did I do with it? Well, sure. <laughs> um, uh, so the word amateur, amateur, it's, the, it's from, from, we get it from the French, but the French got it from uh, Latin, uh, as any Latin student knows, amoamasamat means to love. And it means to love passionately, not to love just sort of, you know, uh, not to like a, a great deal, but to love passionately. This is the word you use uh, with your, with your, you know, with your lover, right? Um, and so it means to love something overwhelmingly and, and, and sort of with abandon. 
and and it came to describe things that we do almost compulsively, not for money is the sort of technical definition, right? You're an amateur if you do something purely for the love of it, for some crazy obsessive interest, right? Um, and uh, so, so in Europe, it had this kind of class tone to it. You know, you were a professional if you were of a certain kind of breed, if a certain kind of, like, um, uh, uh, you know, if you were of a, uh, a, an aristocratic family and, you know, and, and were bred for some activity, right? And in Europe, there was always this sense of, like, if you were the son of a, uh, of a smithy, then you were a smithy. And there was this kind of condemnation of your class. And, and so amateurs were were people who sort of like fitted into the, 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 the sort of, you know, the vertical structure of the class system of Europe. You know, you would, you would sort of go outside of what you were supposed to be doing and you would be an amateur, right? Um, in America, though, it took on a much in, more interesting set of meanings. If you look amateur up in the dictionary or better yet in the thesaurus, you'll see in, in America, it can mean everything from like an expert almost. Like, for example, if I told you, that I was an amateur art collector, you would think that I was probably pretty good at it, right? Um, I mean, that's just the way that word comes across. You know, he's, oh, he's an amateur art collector. He's, he's probably pretty good at it. You know, but if I said that I was, you know, I was a rank amateur uh, at, uh, at playing baseball, you would probably presume that I was really bad at it. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, so that so that the the word can run from like meaning really terrible at something to being like in love with something, the sort of European feeling, and also being really really good at something, right? Um, and um, you know, if someone's an amateur wine collector, we just think like, oh, we don't think he's drinking like MD twenty twenty. No, no, we think he's actually a pretty good wine. A connoisseur, right? Um, so the word has lots of meanings here. And so it can mean everything from like a bozo and a stupid fool to uh, kind of almost a genius. Um, but I think amateur is a really important word in American culture because we, we have been amateurs from the very beginning, right? I mean, the British uh, critique of the American uh, revolution, our constitution, everything, was that we just didn't know what we were doing. We were stupid farmers who were playing around with ideas that we had no you know, no notion of what they really, how powerful they really were. They almost felt sorry for us. And in fact, a lot of the writing around the time of the evolution, uh, revolution was this, uh, was this kind of sense of pity for these, these idiots who were, uh, you know, who, who were so much more inferior than, um, than their European brethren, right? Can I just tell one little great historical anecdote? There's a famous dinner that happens when Ben Franklin is in Paris trying to scare up some money uh, for the revolution. I think it's 1780, 1778, uh, I believe, the summer. And he's there with John Adams and some others trying to lure the Europeans into, into giving us money. And, you know, the scientific theory at the time was that Americans were smaller, that we were weaker, uh, that the atmosphere, the swamp gases made our women infertile. It made our dogs sort of like slightly uh, retarded and incapable of reproduction. Um, there were really these amazing sort of biases against the Americans. Um, and, and that, and our, the men were smaller and we had, we had a much lower sperm count. We couldn't reproduce very well. We were weak, you know, this kind of thing. And so at one point, uh, they're sitting around the table with all these Gallic, Gaelic, uh, you know, uh, 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 intellectuals. And this subject comes up and Franklin apparently 
who was like six two. We don't know exactly how tall he was, but he was a big man, and of course he was he was a man who carried around trays of of uh, you know, uh, cast iron, uh, letterings as a young man. So we know that he had huge shoulders. We all think of Ben as sort of this old guy with a straggly hair and a bald head. But when he was young, he was, he was, I, we, we can pretty much assume he was pretty, a, a, a gr- very strong hunkish sort of man. Okay. And so at this table, he asked all the Americans to stand up and they did. And like all the Americans that happened to be, there were like six, two, and of course, they were sitting at a table with all these sort of five foot five, shrimpy little Frenchmen. And, <laughs> and Ben was like, "So, tell me again your theory about the American gases." <laughs> but yeah, no, so we we were born in this sort of amateur spirit, right? Um, I mean, think about our Constitution. People, you know, especially today, when you listen to these Tea Party guys going on and on about the Constitution as if it were sacred scripture. It was, a, it was sort of like born out of Jefferson's brain or something and and had this sort of like, you know, divine uh, tone to it. No, 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 no. First of all, we had several articles of Confederation, which were, which were just like uh, rough drafts of the Constitution. We just kept tearing them up going, well, that didn't work. Let's just write another one. See, so yeah, that one's better. Uh-huh. That's exactly what happened. Uh, you know, um, over all of those years, we finally got a constitution. We barely got that passed. I mean, the only reason it got ratified is because Washington ran around on, did a tour and basically, you know, blackmailed every state into ratifying it. And even there, the Ninth and Tenth Amendments both are sort of like little pinholes in the constitution that allow us to, you know, amend it and, 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 uh, and and conceive of other rights not enumerated uh, by the founding fathers. So it was an amateur document from the very first word, right? Um, and we are amateur people. We are um, we're all you know, as Franklin Roosevelt once said when he addressed the daughters of the American Revolution, fellow immigrants. Right. We're all immigrants. We're all people who sort of like <laughs> rejected a past and decided to start over. And that's the very definition of an amateur, right? We rejected right. a known past, a professional past, a, 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 a you know a codified way of living for this completely improvisational, insane frontier, this perpetual frontier that is the American, you know, experiment. Right, and so this you you know the celebration of the amateur and the American character is to both our benefit and sometimes our our naive harm in some ways. Joseph Campbell is probably my favorite amateur. I don't think that um, he was considered a professional anthropologist. Right. And I mm-hmm. think he, people frowned at him. But he uh, he said that for a complete mythology, it needed to have certain functions. And that's what bound the entire people under the, the complete mythology. And one of the important things was the fact that it determined who the people were. Right. So the culture is stating not necessarily hierarchy, but definitely the social order. Right. And so this leads me to thoughts about what happened with, you know, Kennewick Man and this desire to make it uh, like a proto-European individual so that we could tell a new story about our own genocide is one thing. And then also you think of a movie like Lord of the Rings and you wonder... You know, this is a big, fun, white movie. (laughs) (laughs) 
but what is it celebrating? You know, and so how conscious, like, that's my question. How conscious do you think some of this, this uh, dominant culture mythology or mythologizing, mythologizing is? What do you think about those thoughts? Well, I think it, you're really tapping into the flip side of the of of the glory of the American amateur sort of experiment, which is the the immense anxiety that comes with it, right? We aren't rooted. We we don't have lordships. We don't have uh, social categories that that uh, that allow us to arrange uh, our society in a kind of hierarchy. Um, we're very upset about it when when uh, you know when. Kennedy was uh, running for president, and we the, the thought of a Catholic being president made us crazy. We overthrew that one. You know, uh, an African American is now uh, president. We've overthrown that one, but that doesn't that doesn't cease the sort of immense anxiety that that the order the 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 alleged natural order of our culture is not really discernible. And so I think there's a there's a kind of there's a there's sort of twin impulses in America. One is to celebrate this, uh, this, this constant sort of state of chaos and improvisation that is the American experiment. And that has to do with sort of reinventing yourself. And, you know, um, I mean, we're really good at that. We, we give ourselves new names. We make up last names. We make up identities. We do this all the time. It's, that's a very American impulse, right? But at the same time, we want this we want this other story. We want a grounded story that makes us feel like we actually do belong here, right? Um, and I think the Kennywick story, and that's why I, I wrote that particular piece, um, really got at really one of the most sort of almost absurdist attempts at this. And I think it's all sort of unconscious. I don't think people were purposefully trying to to write a pre-Native American narrative. But as it turns out, when they found those bones in Seattle, uh, one of the words that got deployed right at the early on onset was, was Caucasoid-like, that these bones were Caucasoid-like. Now, of course, the man who said that, uh, beautifully named James Chatters, uh, Mr. Chatters never really explained what the Caucasoid-like features of this skeleton were, but one of the things that got suggested in all of the press and it just flowed out like a like a like a broken dam. The 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 the, the vocabulary that came out of that word was amazing. Um, and the, the essence of the story that came out was that uh, this skeleton suggested that before Asians crossed the Bering Strait and then slowly became Native Americans over thousands and thousands of years, 13,000 years, um, there was this previous race here, this Caucasoid-like race. And there are many people who try to provide solid scientific findings that back up this claim. Um, I can go into why that claim is pretty thin, but um, and is probably more mythic longing than scientific uh, evidence, um, if you want to. But um, ultimately, I think what we're what that what that story suggests is our deep desire to find us a, a kind of anchor here, and I'm talking about people of European extraction, to have a a, a true claim to this land, one that predates even the, the appearance of Native American Indians. Hmm. Well, the reason why I approached you is because this past summer we found ourselves. So you're among a bunch of amateurs right now. <laughs> it's fully that kind of weekend 
hobbyist right. world where there's a community of people. We've our subgroup is what I'd call it, kind of organized around the idea of synchronicity. Like this is the thing that really lights our fire. And, you know, we all found each other as bloggers on the internet. And then as bloggers, we thought, well, we should put together an anthology of our work and publish a book, you know? So it was this natural evolution of things that have happened because we're interested in the same subject. Remember, that subject is synchronicity. That is our subject, right. And so what, does, what do you mean by that? that uh, go ahead, Will. That's a whole other podcast. <laughs> okay, uh, so, I, meaningful coincidence. Carl tweet, Jung. Right. Tweet me the answer. Tweet me the answer to my question. <laughs> tweet me the answer. Well, um, unexplainable connections, I guess, is the best okay. way to. All right. But mm -hmm. for many of us, the entry route into this world was 9 11 conspiracy. So, this is the shattering moment that took us out of our normal worldview. Like, so we had this event happen, and we're trying to make sense of our new world. And one of the things was keeping an open mind, as mm -hmm. amateurs do, and go into a realm that's scary, but just to, to take on different ideas. Mm -hmm. And that led a number of us through the darkness to this place where reality's stranger than our science allows. Okay. Okay? I buy that. Okay. All right. <laughs> But the problem is, <laughs> the problem is, is that when you're there, there's nothing to anchor to. So if you just admit that reality is a strange thing and that we're going to explore it, that's fine. But if you need bedrock answers, then oftentimes you have to anchor to something. And what happened this past summer was the world became upset. You know, we had all kinds of stuff, Ebola and... Palestine, just mm -hmm. and nihilism essentially, and one of the big media outlets in our world that is not necessarily a part of our subgroup, but definitely exploring the paranormal world and um, conspiracy. They decided mm -hmm. that you know the conspiracy needs a bad guys. It is the Jews, and and uh, somehow whiteness is the answer. Wait, who says that? <laughs> it's this outlet in our community. Well, there's a hard European press to you need, you need to find right a community, my friends. No, but it's not <laughs> our community. So that's that's the the strangest right. thing is that so we're part, as I said, a subgroup. Synchronicity doesn't have an ideology; it merely explores reality. Mm -hmm. But part of our group is is. Um, there's actually an enormous push towards the right right now with a lot of interest and a lot of new documentaries being made about uh, the truth, say, of World War II, um, revisionism as far as uh, the Holocaust goes and things of that nature. Right. Well, revisionism has been with us. You know, ridiculous revisionism has been with us from the beginning. You know, look, I, I think, you know, trying to find too much, uh, too many patterns behind the generally random uh, you know, nature of reality is, is, uh, it's a, it's a fun sort of thing. It's like looking for hidden pictures, you know, in the, uh, in that old, uh, uh, highlights magazine. Um, we hope that they're there, but most of the time they're just not there. You know, in my, in my book on the pilgrimage route, one of the sort of little riffs I have in there was, you know, what was the great forbidden knowledge that Adam may or may have gotten from biting into the apple? And, and what if it? What if that great forbidden knowledge was that the apple was just a mere apple, and there was no forbidden knowledge? 
that it was just a little piece of fruit. It was placebo. <laughs> and, I, and I think off, more often than not, when I hear conspiracy theories, I, I think of that uh, little parable. Um, you know, it's, it's very hard to recognize that behind our tidy narratives rages the aimless human circus, as I once wrote. Um, more often than not, the neat patterns that we cognitively form when we look at events uh, tend to be sort of more mythic stories that we shape in order to give ourselves the satisfaction that there is some rhyme or reason as to what's happening. But, you know, in the end of the day, a lunatic named Oswald shot the president of the United States and probably nobody was there to help him. It just happened. And it's, it's more horrifying, I think, in some ways to think that a lone gunman could sit in a book depository building and shoot the president of the United States. It's much more satisfying to think that an enormous organization with huge resources, some organization, whether that organization be the CIA or Cuba or the Russians or, or the Illuminati or whoever, uh, it's much more satisfying to, to wrap our minds around those narratives than it is to sort of sit with the difficult reality of what probably actually happened. <laughs> Does but, that sense? Yes, yes. Um... But there is, I mean, so you do celebrate both sides of the amateur in your book. I do. And so do. Uh, the first part, the, the, the Ivory Bill Woodpecker part is great fun. Mm-hmm. Because right. it's, it's a similar kind of world where they're chasing Bigfoot, right. Elvis, right. They're, ghosts. They're chasing ghosts. That's right. The, the, and, 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 you know, the brain has a way of, and we've, we've all woken up in the middle of the night or had one of those sort of what are they called, hypnagogic states, where we definitely see ghosts, right? We're paralyzed. We see some kind of projection in front of us. And it's not until you wake up in the light of day and try to understand uh, in, in, in the cold light of day what actually happened that you sort of take a more rational view. But so that, that, that pattern discerning talent of ours is really the, you know, the pathway to genius. But of course, most, most of the time, it's a pathway to, to idiocy. Um, that's the problem. We don't really know the difference until, like, you know, <laughs> everything is settled out. <laughs> then we realize, oh, you know, I mean, take Isaac Newton, for example, right? Great scientist, but what most people don't know is that he spent, you know, uh, several decades later in his life uh, trying to crack the code of alchemy and transmute lead into gold. So, um, and so, you know, there's a part of him that was that was foolish. But at the time, that was not foolish chemistry. That was that was a perfectly legitimate line of of um, you know uh, of of inquiry, right? Um, Arthur Conan Doyle uh, regrets that all of us read only his Sherlock Holmes stories and not his paranormal investigations, which were you know immense. Um, but uh, I don't know. I mean, I think I think those uh, the, those the the neatly packaging realities that we create in order to make sense of what is often random action in nature, um, they're impressive. They're really impressive often, um, but also fun is to unpack those sort of mythic constructions and see what it is we're really trying to tell ourselves. Um, and I think with Kinniwick Man, I think there is a real deep anxiety in especially the, the European-American 
uh, cohort of which I am one um, that wants to find um, a great and noble story that, that, you know, courses all the way back through the mists of time to the very beginning of life on this continent. One of the reasons why I appreciated Joseph Campbell, because I did something similar yep. where when I was going to college in Seattle, it was a community college, and I was actually a minority in many of the classes as the mm -hmm. white the white male. So dominant right. culture is my culture, but here's an instance where I was the minority, and I was kind of jealous of their unique identity. Right. That right. They had something that I didn't necessarily perceive I had, even though I have <laughs> all of popular culture, that's all mine. But, right. <laughs> but so I did some research to go back to find my own roots, you know, back to the pagan German forests. And in doing that, I found Joseph Campbell. And in finding Joseph Campbell, I realized that the particular is less important than the universal, which is in all the mythologies. Right. So right. like he was always fond of saying that black elk this Sioux chief said that the center of the world is Harney Peak in South Dakota. <laughs> right. But right. it's anywhere you are. Um, oh, no. I think I've lost my train of thought. <laughs> oh, you were going, going back to your genealogical roots. and uh, or, or you're the minority. The, uh, in Seattle. In the no, I'm not going to get there. <laughs> oh, horrible. Come on, Douglas. All right. Well, let's see. What 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 is there to talk about next? Then Jews gone wild. Jews gone wild. One of my favorite sort of Mormon beliefs. Um, and in fact, long before the Mormons ever latched onto it. Well, let me explain what it is. So, um, uh, according to uh, Mormon dogma, um, the lost tribe of Israel traveled over here some you know several thousand years ago, and landed somewhere in uh, eastern Mexico. Um, and then lost their way with the book, uh, forgot the Bible, and kind of went feral, if you will, um, and became Native American Indians. So, according to uh, official Mormon theory, all Native American Indians are descendants of the lost tribe of Israel, or what you like to call Jews gone wild. <laughs> um, but yeah. <laughs> Um, but you know, that was not an uncommon thought before Joseph Smith ever found his, uh, magic goggles and the, and the, and the, and the special plates. Um, th that, that idea was kicking around, um, among Jews even, uh, in the, in this, in the 17th century here in America, there were books written about the possibility that, that native Americans were some form of the lost tribe of Israel. And, the reason that was is because, of course, Europeans arrived here and were shocked to find that not only were there people already here, but there were a lot of people already here. <laughs> a lot of people. Huge population centers of Native Americans all over the country. And so suddenly their discovery didn't, didn't seem so special. And so there had to be some, there had to be talking about sort of patterns and cognitive uh, biases. You know, we had to create a story that explained why these people were here before the, the great Europeans figured it out. And the reason is that, um, you know, I mean, is that they, they wanted to say that there were these great Europeans here before Europeans got here. 
<laughs> and the best way to say that was to redefine Native Americans as as Jews, as Europeans, as some form of sort of, you know, their original group, too, you see? All right. So maybe my whole little thing was leading towards a question about a new narrative that that includes all the world, that we don't have an in-group anymore, or like an out-group, let's say. Do you mm -hmm. think we're moving in that direction, or do you think we're still a long ways off about reconciling what we perceive as differences? You know, um, uh, what's that? There's a Tom Stoppard play that where he talks about the loopiness of history, that we're not this, it's not this straight line where things you know, change, but that we kind of like constantly loop back and, and sort of recapitulate. It's almost like a Freudian take on, on history, that we're constantly sort of doing the same thing kind of over and over with sort of new, it's sort of the history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme kind of line, right? And, um, and that, that idea, I think, explains sort of uh, the sort of American sort of historical projection, which is that we're constantly recapitulating our own history. And so rather than get over our ethnic anxieties, we just simply find new ways to cast them and tell those stories. <laughs> Does that make sense? And so then do you have hope for the world or pessimist, optimist? I'm, I'm an American. I have the greatest hope of all. I mean, <laughs> I dwell in a state of, of perpetual optimism. I'm candide compared to, uh, you know, the rest of the cultures on the world, right? Because, I mean, we do believe in reinvention. We do believe that, that the American idea is that there are second, third, and fourth, and fifth acts, right? So, um, yeah, uh, I do. And are you cooking anything up in your garage currently? I am. I just, I just converted my combustion engine cabrio Volkswagen to an all-electric lithium-ion battery-driven car. Good and grief! I did, and I now have I now have this scheme. I want to I want to sort of do that to a house. That's a whole long story, but yeah, I want to concoct an entire. I have there's a number of different amateur solutions to a lot of housing issues, and I want to try to build my own house that incorporates a lot of these very cool ideas. So that's my next project. Okay, well that was 42 minutes. Thank you for sharing it with us. Well, thanks for having me on the show. You bet. Was, very good. You've been listening to Jack Hit on SyncBook Radio, a production of thesyncbook.com. More information about the work of Mr. Hit can be found at jackhit.com. For more information about the SyncBook, our guest, to check out past shows or to subscribe to the podcast via iTunes, please be sure and visit our website at 42minutes.com. If you'd like to support the show, we urge you to become a donor. You'll find the donation links under each episode on the website and consider setting up a monthly charge. Thanks so much. And Elvis has left the woods. <laughs> I want to tell you how much I appreciated uh, the, the Ivory Bill story in your book. Oh, thank you. Thank I, you. I, I, it broke my heart. I didn't know about the cut. Wait, which, what do you mean, the cut? The cut that where it, it seems like you intimated that the last, the last um, remnants of the uh, Ivory Bill's territory was this Oh, yes. Oh, that cut. The logging cut. Yes. Yeah. Right. Yes. Yeah. That. How is that for triple double-decker irony, right? The Nazis. Yeah. Cut down the last stand oh, yeah. of Ivory Bill Woodpecker habitat. 
and then yeah. it turns out we're just money grubbers after all. That's that's what the CEO of whatever that was called, the Chicago Temp Lumber Company, I believe. Yeah, that was his line. Amazing. But then there's some kind of weird parable to me about just the nature of time where we want to hold on to something because it it's like the anchoring. So the, here's the... The America is the land of the new, and it seems like right. we have catastrophes every generation. Well, don't you see, don't you see the the mythic uh, sort of like dimensions of that story? I mean, that is Noah's dove, right? We want that bird to reappear because it's 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 an it's a sign of forgiveness for our you know sort of environmental uh, crimes in the southeast. We clear cut whatever that, I can't remember the number, 11 million acres of longleaf pine forest. And we did it in about 20 years, which in, you know, environmental terms is a few minutes. And, and nobody and, knows about it either. Right. No, it's a completely forgotten uh, act of really one of the, one of the worst sort of environmental crimes in, in, in history. Um, totally transformed the land, you know, committed the South to a century of poverty afterwards. Um, and destroyed, you know, who knows how many species, but the ivory bill woodpecker is just the sort of, you know, as if, if you will, the canary in the, the mine, <laughs> to mix my ornithologi- ornithological. <laughs> wow. That's some next level right there. <laughs> right, right. We'll, just, we'll save that one for the next 42 minutes. <laughs> okay, well, thank you for doing this. This was a lot of hey, fun. Thank you. That's, that was a blast.